Well, Merry and blessed Christmas to you all. We are so pleased to be in this beautiful season of the year and to see God's hand on our celebrations and our opportunities for service. Well, there are only 10 shopping days left of Christmas. Uh, some of you say, are you doing math right? Well, that's counting online shopping days as well. But I want you encouraged to shop locally, <laughs> not just online, to, to uh, give business to our merchants, right? You've heard it as have I. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, jingle bells, Frosty the snowman, walking in a winter wonderland, are just some of the familiar Christmas songs that we all hear this time of the year. But I ask with you this morning, what is the real meaning and significance of Christmas? Why did Jesus step across the galaxies which he spoke into existence by the word of his mouth? Why did he leave the splendors and the palatial wonders of heaven? to step across those galaxies to become a baby in a manger who became a savior on a cross. Why did the Lord Jesus do that? Why was he born? The answer to this question of why he was born will unlock the true and real meaning of Christmas and its significance. You know, Satan has done a pretty effective job of almost completely blinding the eyes of persons regarding the true meaning of Christmas. Santa Claus and tinsel and trees and turkeys and lights and bonus checks and basketball and football and sales and mistletoe and food and traditions and decorations and parties and presents and, need we say, dare we say, greed. And in the Bahamas, crime and debt spiraling out of control. But even more deceiving than those things, all outward, are what I believe is a counterfeit core of Christmas. The counterfeit core of Christmas is making it all about certain dates, the 12 days of Christmas or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. The meaning of Jesus' birth is much, much more than the date of December 25th. For instance, when a child is born to you, it would be a big mistake to focus on July 28th, which might be the birthday of the child, to the expense of the child's soul and expense of the child's aptitudes and the expense of the child's potential and to the expense of the child's salvation in Christ. What we have now in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas and elsewhere in the world is a situation where any grade school teacher might ask students, write on your piece of paper, Christmas, and then beside Christmas, the first one or two words that comes to your mind. And we might get Christmas tree and Christmas carols and holly and red and Santa Claus and holidays and presents and family and food and fun and candy and parade. But would we get Jesus? Would we get Jesus? There were two women who got fancily dressed and went to a very expensive restaurant together to celebrate one of their children's birthday. One of the women had a boy turning five years old. And when the waiter came to the table at this fancy restaurant and saw these ladies coming in for lunch, he happened to ask, well, what brings you here today, ladies? And they said, it's a birthday party for my son. And the waiter said, well, where is he? Oh, he would ruin everything if we brought him along. How similar that could be for some person's celebration of Christmas. Don't drag Jesus into all this. He'd ruin everything. Some people think that way, you know. In the event of the birth of the baby in Bethlehem, the only meaningful and significant way to look at it 
is to look at the divine commentary that the Spirit of God wrote through the Apostle John in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. If you have your Bibles on your regular conventional Bible or your Bible on your devices, please turn to John 3, 16 to 21 to hear what God says about the meaning of Christmas, what God says about the reason that his son was born the first Christmas in Bethlehem. The best way to interpret Scripture, I've told you before, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that's what we're going to do in these moments as I read John 3, 16 to 21. Again, please hear the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When we jump into John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, of course there's a context, there's a flow of what has happened in the narrative. Some events have happened before we just jumped into John 3, 16. For instance, a religious leader named Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. He was embarrassed to, to admit that an uneducated Galilean could teach him a rabbi anything. And Nicodemus had come to Jesus for answers, big answers. And Jesus told that person, that Nicholas, Nicodemus, to be born again is to get heaven. Not to be born again is not to get heaven. And Jesus explained that, that only he had come from heaven to earth so that he could tell people how to get to earth from heaven. You ever thought about that? The only one who's ever come from heaven. Heaven to earth is Jesus Christ, so he is uniquely qualified to tell us how to get from earth to heaven. That's what happened that night. And in that same context, the Lord Jesus, in somewhat of an oblique way perhaps, predicted his own death on the cross. And Jesus linked belief in him with getting eternal life. All of that has happened in the text, in the history, before we jump into John 3 and verse 16. So when we come to this passage, John 3, 16 to 21, we come to three teachings. Number one, the reason for Christ coming at Christmas, that's verses 16 and 17. Number two, the result of Christ coming at Christmas, that's verses 18 to 21. And third, the response to Christ coming at Christmas, which is based on all of the verses 16 to 21. So let's jump into the exposition of this passage with the first point. And that is the reason for Christ coming at Christmas. The reason for Christ coming at Christmas. 16 and 17 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. There are two reasons in the text as to why Christ came at Christmas. Number one, reason to reveal the heart of God. To reveal the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
The son came Christmas time to reveal the heart of God. Subpoint under that, the proof that God so loved us is that he gave his only begotten son. I've told you before, both of our children were adopted as newborn babies, Joanna in 1993 and Jonathan, or JD we call him, in 1998. So I have one daughter and I have one son, but I'll tell you something. I do not love any of you enough for me to direct my son to die for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I don't. God only had one son. The triune God in the Trinity, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One son. And God loved us so much and wanted us not to perish so much that he sent his son. And the son loved us so much that he came here the first Christmas. And so the proof that God loved us is that he gave. By the way, I've taught you before that agape love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a decision. Agape love discerns the greatest need in the one who is loved and then sacrificially meets that need without concern for the cost or the payback. That's how husbands are to love their wives. God discerned the greatest need in a planet full of rebels to be a sin problem a sin debt, and he sent, sacrificially, he sent his son to die for our sins, and that began with the son becoming incarnate at Christmas. There's a saying which is true that actions speak louder than words. We can talk a good name of love, good game of love, but if our actions don't follow through, then we really haven't loved, and that's why the Boxing Day meal is such a practical outworking of love again this year. And so this love of God that, that was proven by the incarnation is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a sacrifice. It doesn't have strings attached. But there's a second thing. Not only the proof that God loved us reveals his heart, but the point of God loving us also reveals God's heart. Subpoint under that is we bear God's image. You know that, right? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, both made in the image of God, when they fell into sin, God's image was effaced. Graffiti was written all over it, as it were, but not erased. And so every person you know, every person you meet is made in God's image, even though there's graffiti spray-painted on the outside of all of us. There's more. The point of God loving us and sending us his son after we bear God's image, is that we can bear Christ's image. Amazing. The second person of the Trinity, co-equal with all the other persons of the Trinity, uncreated, creator, savior, redeemer. Amazing that likes of me and the likes of you can resemble his image with time. Progressively have the things pointed out in our lives that doesn't look like Jesus, and then renounce them, repent of them, work in the Word's direction, follow the Bible's express will for us as believers, and become progressively more like Jesus. I hope that I am more like Jesus today than I was yesterday, but I hope not as much as I will be tomorrow. Second reason, the two reasons, rather, that Christ came at Christmas was to reveal the heart of God, and second, to redeem the souls of sinners. Verse 17, watch for the redemption that Christ teaches Nicodemus. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved, not educated through him. That the world should be saved, not philanthropically blessed. That the world should be saved through him. In order to redeem us, the Lord Jesus had to die. It was like, therefore, the shadow of the cross fell over the place of his birth that night. You know, I think that one of the wise men who came to present gifts of worship and praise to the newborn baby, one of those wise men brought a spice that was commonly used to embalm bodies. The cross shadow was over the manger. Jesus Christ was born with the express purpose of dying, rising from the dead to bring justification to those who would believe in him. And of course, it was the uniqueness of Jesus Christ's virgin birth that set up the uniqueness of Christ's sin-atoning death. Oh yes, Jesus Christ had to die to redeem us. It could not be done without death. It could not be done without blood. Jesus had to die to redeem us because he was born to take on the mission of being our Savior. 17, but that the world should be saved through him. Are you saved? I know the vast majority in the sound of my voice are, are you telling the world that they can be saved through Christ? This is too good news to keep to yourself. This is too good a news to huddle in a holy huddle every Lord's Day and never go into the community, never go into our workplaces, never go into our families to share the good news. Follow this logical chain, because each link in the chain builds on the previous links. Sin required redemption. Redemption required blood. Blood required death. Death required a mortal body. Mortal body required an incarnation. An incarnation required a virgin birth. A virgin birth required a miracle-working God. A miracle-working God required nothing. He is eternal and uncreated and self-sufficient. Luke 2.7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Please know that the strips of cloth that Mary used to wrap baby Jesus to keep him warm were a foreshadow, a prediction of the strips of cloth which Joseph of Arimathea would use to bury a dead Jesus after the cross. In heaven's eyes, the only eyes that matter, in heaven's eyes, Jesus' birth was always with a view to his death. In heaven's eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ's birth was always in view of his death, always. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, that great opening mammoth paragraph of praise in the epistle to the Ephesians, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, follow with me as I expand on that, which I just read. If we were chosen in Christ for salvation, and we were, chosen in Christ for salvation before the foundation of the world, then the cross must have been in the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Again, in heaven's eyes, 
Christ's birth was always with a view to his death. In Matthew 1, verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. He who will save his people from their sins. Sins fallen on hard times nowadays. We do a blame game. We blame our parents. We blame our neighborhood. We blame our teacher at school. We blame poverty. We blame whatever for sin. Sin has not fallen on hard times in Scripture. One of the themes of Scripture is human sin from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible where sin is no longer present in heaven. It says that Joseph, foster father of the Lord Jesus, was told by the angel, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, in the directions which were given by this angel of the Lord to Joseph regarding the child's name, there obviously is a clear indication of Jesus' eventual death. For he said, the angel said, he shall save his people from their sins. And that was only possible through shed blood, which is only possible through death. Thus, Jesus Christ came not to judge sinners, but to die for sinners like us. Put another way, Christ came not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners. John 12, verse 47, And if anyone hears my sayings, Jesus said, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. (laughs) There was a father and a little son who were taking a walk. The little boy was holding his daddy's hand, and before they realized it, they had stepped on a big anthill. And the little boy was a very observant little boy, and he looked down, and he said, Dad, we just stepped on that anthill, and look at those ants. Some of them are dead, and others are badly injured. Isn't there something we could do, Daddy, to help the ants? And his dad said, Son, the only way we could help the ants is if we could become an ant, to go into that anthill and help. The vast creator God came to this dusty old tennis ball called earth and as it were became like an ant in an anthill. Praise his name. And so, Jesus said in John twelve forty seven that I did not come to judge the world. No, the first time Christ came, he didn't come to judge the world. But the second time that Jesus Christ came, he will come to judge the world. He came the first time as the lamb for sinners slain. He will come the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Will you be ready? And so from the first point today, the reason for Jesus Christ coming to reveal the heart of God and to redeem souls of sinners, we come to the second point today, the result of Christ coming at Christmas. And the result of Christ coming at Christmas is 18 to 21 of our passage. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Whoever who does evil hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth, practices the truth, comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought, sourced in God. And so the result of Christ coming to earth at Christmas is that it includes a judgment. Christ coming to earth at Christmas has as its result a future judgment, a verdict that must be rendered. Christ coming at Christmas calls for a verdict. And subpoint under that, the, what's the basis of the verdict that's being called for? Verse 18 tells us, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ coming at Christmas has put all persons into two possible classifications, two possible categories, pardoned or condemned, lost or saved, sons of Satan or sons of God, sinner or saint, dead in trespasses and sin or alive in Christ. Those are the categories, two categories. That's the verdict. And the basis of these classifications is, according to verse 18, whether we believes in him, Christ, or does not believe. Whether you believe in Christ as Savior or you disbelieve that Christ is Savior, that's what puts you in one of two categories. And so when you meet someone around your Christmas table, they're not fat or skinny. They're not black or white. They're not rich or poor. They aren't family or friend. They are either saved by belief in Christ or they're lost by belief in Christ. Those are the only two categories. And it must be pointed out at this point that the privilege of believing is not being judged. And it's in the present tense in the Greek. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we are not judged. Not now, not in the future, not ever. It's continuing action. Isn't that great? If that's the privilege of believing, is not being judged, then we need to see that this believing in Jesus for salvation forever spares the believer in Christ from any judgment against personal sin. Why? Because Jesus took the fall. For those of you who are still minors and under the roof of your parents, Jesus took your spanking. John 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, does not come into judgment, not for sin, but is passed out of death into life. Or Romans 8, 1, a beautiful verse at the, at the front door of chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the privilege of believing, not being judged and penalized for our sins, because Jesus took the fall. Jesus paid the penalty that we owed God. Jesus took our spanking. But there's also a peril. Not only is there a privilege for those that believe in Christ, but there's a peril. And it's the peril of not believing is to be permanently judged and condemned. When the person Without Jesus Christ dies, there's a perfect tense verb here in the Greek. It means a completed action. When a person, man or woman, boy or girl, dies, 
There's a point in time, if they haven't trusted Christ to be Savior while they were alive, there's a point in action that has continuous result. I told you before, when we were married, my wife and I were married in 1983, when both of us said, I will, before God and witnesses, from that point in time, the perfect tense has meant there's positive results for the rest of the way until one of us dies. When a person dies without Jesus Christ as Savior, that's a point in time, and that point in time has a terrible result that continues forever, which is banishment from God and conscious eternal punishment in hell. And so when someone dies and you know they didn't die, but Jesus is Savior, don't say rest in peace. Because they won't. And so this verdict, this verdict will never be overturned in some purgatory or anywhere else. There's no second chance after death. None. There's no court of appeal. There is no appellate court. On the judgment day future, for those who didn't believe in Jesus, the great white throne judgment, you can read about it in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. The unbelievers of all the ages and all the times since the creation in the garden, all of the unbelievers will not have Jesus Christ as their defense attorney. For the believer, Jesus Christ is our defense attorney right now in the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And when Satan accuses Eliot, that was sin, Father, that was sin, then the Father says, he looks at the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus looks at him, and Jesus said, he's mine. I paid for that sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in me. But when you haven't trusted Christ as Savior before you go, Jesus is not your defense attorney in that courtroom. He's your sentencing judge. It's worth pointing out that in that courtroom future, the great white throne judgment courtroom, Satan will be totally absent. He will have abandoned each unbeliever. He will be eternally already banished to his prison cell, which is known as the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. And so that's the basis of the verdict, whether you're in or out of Christ. Now, from the basis of the verdict, we go next to the executor of the verdict. Verses 19 and 21. Who executes this verdict? 19 through 21. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or sourced in God. So the executor of the verdict is the Lord Jesus Christ who came the first Christmas to present a choice to each and every person. He came the first Christmas to present a choice. And these verses that I've read, 19 to 21, are saying that every unconverted person classifies him or herself by what he or she does do with Christ before death or by what he or she does not do with Christ before death. It isn't what one does with money. It isn't what one does with the church. It isn't what one does with baptism. It isn't what one does with Holy Communion. It isn't what one does with good works. 
Instead, it's what one does with Christ while alive. Instead, it's what one doesn't do with Christ while alive. And so the executor of this verdict is really the person, him or herself. Verses 19 and 20 that I've just read, these verses show us those who are condemned execute their own judgment by refusing the sun and refusing the light. John also wrote about this in his first chapter, 6 through 9. It says, there came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light. The article there says it's a definite light. It's not a light. It's the light. There is not other light in world religions other than Christianity. There came to a man sent from God. His name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. See the word that I just read, loved, in verse 19? It's exactly the same Greek word translated love in verse 16. For God so loved, a derivative of agape, which I've taught you again this morning, that is a decision. That is a choice. That is unconditional. That is not looking for reciprocation. That is not worried about the high cost of sacrifice to furnish it. And so it says in John 1, 6, 9, there came a man sent from God, his name was John. He came for a witness that he may bear witness of the light, that, he might, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's love. And so constantly as I'm preaching all around the globe, as I'm preaching, there are persons from every tribe, ethnicity, nation, and language group. There are persons right now making their decisions and choices about Jesus Christ. And right here in the sanctuary, there are probably persons making their decision right now about what they will do with Jesus Christ. The U.S. Center for World Mission told us many years ago that on average around the world, every single day, at least 88,000 individuals trust Christ to be Savior. Oh yes, as I'm preaching here and all around the world as other gospel heralds are sharing the gospel, people are making decisions about Jesus Christ. Whether they'll believe in him for salvation or they will reject him and dare to go it on their own before God. Now it says that when persons decide and choose to reject Christ, they do so, according to verse 19, because their deeds were evil. In other words, they loved to sin. There was a little boy who, his well-meaning grandmother gave him a pin cushion for Christmas. You know, one of these things that sewers put pins in, he gave it to a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> and uh, his mother nudged him to thank Grammy for the pin cushion. This is what he mustered. Thanks, Grammy. I always wanted a pincushion, just not very much. There are some people who hear about the light of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and they say they want it, just not very much. They'd love to sin more than they want salvation. They're going to take that risk to stand before Jesus Christ as judge. They're going to take their chances. 
Now, verse 21, we're almost finished. Jesus said, but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This verse is teaching that those who are not condemned, listen, are proved that they are not condemned by habitually living the truth that they find in coming to the light of Scripture. Did I say sinless perfection? No, I didn't. There is no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven for a believer in Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about the videotape of the Christian's life. I'm talking about the capturing of all the thoughts, words, and deeds over a long period of time. And this verse is saying that if you are truly in Christ and not going to be condemned, that what will prove that is that you habitually, characteristically, go to the light. You go to the light of Christ. You go to the light of the Bible. You go to the light. And in so doing, we see that right thinking for the believer leads to right doing. And we see that right believing leads to right behaving. And we see that loving the light leads to staying out of the dark. And so if there's a videotape camera of your redeemed life, maybe even say five years, 15 years, 20 years, 50 years, if there's a videotape of your redeemed life, does it show you moving to the light as your habit, as your characteristic movement? Or could it be, God forbid, that the videotape shows you moving away from the light, loving sin? Would to God that we would be a congregation that moves toward the light. Because God gets the glory when we move toward the light. Third and final point, what is the response to Christ coming at Christmas? What will you do with Jesus? Not what will your mate do or your mom or your dad or your child or your aunt or your uncle or a chartered member of this church. Not what they will do with Christ. What will you do with Christ? There's no neutral position. You're either for him or you're against him. C.S. Lewis had it right when he wrote in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Hell is the answer to prayer of the rejecter of Christ who says to God, Leave me alone. Hell is the answer to that prayer. And so if you're here this morning, God knows our hearts. If you're here this morning, and you know that you're not in Christ, you haven't trusted him yet to be your Savior. You know about him. Maybe you grew up in this church. Maybe you have a godly wife. But you know I'm not yet saved. I'm lost and not saved right now. We could make that a difference by inviting you to pray. Not that a prayer saves you, but a prayer indicates to your own heart and to God's heart that you're transferring your trust from yourself or anyone else to the finished work of Christ. So let's bow and pray. It could be this morning that there are precious souls here today that have been going in on their own, have been loving sin more than going to the light. But in these moments, the Spirit of God has convicted and is drawing them to the light of Jesus Christ, 
and to the light of His Word that points us to the light of Christ. If that is your situation, I'm just going to give you opportunity to trust Jesus to be your Savior right from where you sit. Make this your prayer if this is your heart's desire. God, you are holy, and I am not. I believe that Jesus died in my place to take the fall for my sins. Right now, in the best way I know how, I trust Christ and only Christ. Be my Savior. Father, I thank you that Jesus did not stay dead. That you raised him from death in resurrection to prove to me and all of us that our sins have been paid for by Christ in full. I transfer my trust to Jesus Christ. Make me new from the inside out. Change me. Help me to live a thank you kind of life back to you the rest of my days. If you made that your prayer, it's not a magic prayer, but it's expressing trust in Christ. If you express your trust in Christ for the first time, I warmly welcome you to God's forever family. If you do not have a church that you could go to near where you live that preaches the Bible, we would be delighted to welcome you into this assembly to help you grow up and not merely old, to grow up into Christ. Lord, for those of us who are saved, forgive us when we've stayed in the dark and not run to the light. Change us too. That we would be vocal about you and not hypocritical in any manner. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, proving the heart of God, and redeeming sinners' souls. And we pray these things with eternal gratitude in Jesus' name, in Jesus for his sake. Amen. Amen.